All right, we are back. You know, that might be the first segment we've done since the dawn of the Trump presidency that does not mention the word Trump. But since in the last week, probably the most bizarre document I've seen in my lifetime associated with a presidency, or at least it's got to be a candidate for same, was this anonymous op-ed piece that appeared in the New York Times. This is worth a couple of minutes. The New York Times took the rare step back on September 5th of publishing an anonymous op-ed essay. They did so at the request of the author, described as a senior official in the Trump administration whose identity was known to the paper and whose job would be jeopardized by its disclosure. They added, we believe publishing this essay anonymously is the only way to deliver an important perspective to our readers. This was certainly echoed by Bob Woodward, who you may have heard on Terry Gross a few days back, describing how when politicians come forward to say something officially, uh, you can pretty much count on the fact that it's not going to be accurate. But if you put them on deep background and protect their identity, they may be willing to tell you the truth. This is one reason why Radio Parallax has almost never brought politicians on board to speak on the record about this, that, or the other. We simply don't find that discourse to be generally accurate or useful. Well, at least until they retire from politics. We certainly enjoyed talking to Senator Eugene McCarthy. We certainly enjoyed very much speaking with former Representative Pete McCloskey. You know, although come to think of it, we did enjoy our chat with Dennis Kucinich, who was at that time, I guess still is a representative from Ohio. I guess someone like Kucinich can, can give you his version of, you know, events as he thinks they really are, um, even though it means that there's no possibility you'll ever get elected. Oh, by the way, Please don't tell Dennis Kucinich that. That's, that's just between us. Anyway, let's just take a few choice quotes from this op-ed piece because, my God. Said the op-ed, President Trump is facing a test in his presidency unlike any faced by a modern American leader. It's not just that the special counsel looms large or that the country is bitterly divided over Mr. Trump's leadership or even that his party might well lose the House to an opposition hell-bent on his downfall. The dilemma, which he does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations, adding, I would know, I am one of them. After squaring allegiance to the basic thrust of the Trump presidency, the anonymous writer then adds, the root of the problem is the president's amorality. Anyone who works with him knows he is not moored to any discernible first principles that guide his decision-making. A few lines later, he adds, From the White House to executive branch departments and agencies, senior officials will privately admit their daily disbelief at the commander-in-chief's comments and actions. Most are working to insulate their operations from his whims. Meetings with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants, and his impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed, and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. The author then quotes what he describes as a top official <laughs> in the administration as saying, to him, there's literally no telling whether he might change his mind from one minute to the next. The official was exasperated by an Oval Office meeting in which the president flip-flopped on a major policy decision he'd made a week earlier. 
Here, here's what I think is just, just, just a blockbuster bomb of a line. It may be cold comfort in this chaotic era, but Americans should know that there are adults in the room. We fully recognize what is happening, and we are trying to do what's right, even when Donald Trump won't. Holy mackerel! The op-ed author said the president was reluctant to expel so many of Mr. Putin's spies as punishment for the poisoning of a former Russian spy in Britain. He complained for weeks about senior staff members letting him get boxed into further confrontation with Russia, and he expressed frustration that the U.S. continued to impose sanctions on the country for its malign behavior. The author notes his national security team knew better. Such actions had to be taken to hold Moscow accountable. He said, this isn't the work of the so-called deep state, it's the work of the steady state. He added, given the instability many witnessed, there were early whispers within the cabinet for invoking the 25th Amendment, which would start a complex process for removing the president. But no one wanted to precipitate a constitutional crisis. So we will do what we can to steer the administration in the right direction until one way or the other, it's over. Another blockbuster line. The bigger concern is not what Mr. Trump has done to the presidency, which they're going to keep subverting till, quote, it's over, whatever that means, but rather what we as a nation have allowed him to do to us. We have sunk low with him and have allowed our discourse to be stripped of civility. That's uh, some pretty amazing stuff. I did see one report that, that on the basis of how this was written using shorter sentences than usual, that the suspected author was Vice President Mike Pence. One has to wonder if they did remove the president from office, well then Mike Pence would become the next president. This is uh, possibly a more direct approach than say giving Mr. Trump motorcade ride through the streets of Dallas. Oh, by the way, the sp spokesperson for the vice president has denied his authorship of the op-ed piece. Spokesman Jared Agin wrote in a morning tweet, yeah, we're doing everything by tweets these days. The vice president puts his name on his op-eds. Speculation about uh, Pence, of course, has been rampant on social media and cable television because in part of the op-eds writer's use of, quote, lodestar, unquote, an archaic word that the vice president has used in his speeches. Anyway, my dear listener, I, I, I doubt that there are too many of you out there hearing my voice that, that harbor doubts about the possibility that our chief executive is a bit unhinged. I mean, if you followed the career of Donald Trump from when he first became a national figure, uh, very little about his presidency should seem like a surprise. Let's talk a bit about the evil behavior of the Republican establishment. These same people that denied a Supreme Court seat to President Obama's choice of Merrick Garland. That was such shockingly dirty pool. And as a result of that dirty pool, Neil Gorsuch is on the United States Supreme Court. He was appointed for life, like they all are. Now, thanks to the efforts of the Republican Party, as advised by the Federalist Society, we have Brent Kavanaugh up for the next vacancy, that of retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy. We need to talk about the Federalist Society a bit. We also need to quote, I think, from a piece by David Brock, former Republican operative, who said recently, I used to know Brett Kavanaugh pretty well. And 
When I think of Brett now, in the midst of his hearings for the lifetime appointment of the U.S. Supreme Court, all I can think of is the old Aesop's Fables adage, a man is known by the company he keeps. And that's why I want to tell any senator who cares about democracy, vote no. Twenty years ago, when I was a conservative movement stalwart, I got to know Brent Kavanaugh both professionally and personally. Brett actually makes a cameo appearance in my memoir of my time in the GOP, Blinded by the Right. I describe him at a party full of zealous young conservatives gathered to watch President Clinton's 1998 State of the Union address, just weeks after the story of his affair with a White House intern had broken. When the TV cameras panned to Hillary Clinton, I saw Brett, at the time a key lieutenant of Ken Starr, the independent counsel investigating various Clinton scandals, mouth the word bitch. But there's a lot more to know about Kavanaugh than just his Pavlovian response to Hillary's image. Brett and I were part of a close circle of cold, cynical, and ambitious hard-right operatives being groomed by GOP elders for a much bigger role in politics, government, and the media. And it's those controversial associations that should give members of the Senate and the American public serious pause. Call it Kavanaugh's cabal. There was his colleagues in the Starr investigation, Alex Azar, now Secretary of Health and Human Services. Mark Paoletta is now Chief Counsel to Vice President Mike Pence. House anti-Clinton gumshoe Barbara Comstock is now a Republican member of Congress. Future Fox News personalities Laura Ingraham and Tucker Carlson were there with Ann Coulter, now a best-selling author, and internet provocateur Matt Drudge. Did you know, dear listener, that all these people were uh, hardcore GOP operatives in the late 90s? I did not. David Brock informs us that at one time or another, each of them partied at my Georgetown townhouse amid much booze and thick air of cigar smoke. Brock says it's a rough division of labor. Kavanaugh played the role of lawyer, one of the sharp young minds recruited by the Federalist Society to infiltrate the federal judiciary with true believers. Through that network, Kavanaugh was mentored by D.C. appeals court judge Lawrence Silberman, known among his colleagues for planting leaks for the press for partisan advantage. Brock goes on, when, as I came to know, Kavanaugh took on the role of designated leaker to the press of sensitive information from Starr's operation, we all laughed that Larry had taught him well. Another compatriot was George Conway, now Kellyanne's husband, who led a secretive group of right-wing lawyers, we called them the Elves, who worked behind the scenes directing the litigation team of Paula Jones, who had sued Clinton for sexual harassment. I knew then that information was flowing quietly from the Jones team via Conway to Ken Starr's office, and also that Conway's go-to man was none other than Brett Kavanaugh. Said David Brock, that critical flow of information allowed Ken Starr, in effect, to set a perjury trap for Clinton, laying the foundation for a crazed national political crisis and an unjust impeachment over a consensual affair. Said Brock, the cabal's godfather was Ted Olson, the then-future solicitor general for George W. Bush and now sainted figure for the GOP establishment and for some liberals for his role in legalizing same-sex marriage. Olson had a largely hidden role as a consigliere to the Arkansas Project, a multi-million dollar dirt-digging operation on the Clintons, funded by the eccentric right-wing billionaire Richard Mellon Scafie. 
and run through the American Spectator magazine where I worked at the time. Referring to his work for the Star Investigation, Brock says Kavanaugh was not a dispassionate finder of fact, but rather an engineer of a political smear campaign. And after decades of that, he expects people to believe he's changed his stripes. Like millions of Americans this week, I tuned into Kavanaugh's hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee with great interest. In his opening statement and subsequent testimony, Kavanaugh presented himself as a, quote, neutral and impartial arbiter, unquote, of the law. Judges, he said, were not players but akin to umpires, objectively calling balls and strikes. And again and again, he stressed his independence from partisan political influences. Said Brock, I don't need to see any documents to tell you who Kavanaugh is because I've known him for years. And I'll leave it to all the lawyers to parse Kavanaugh's review, views on everything from privacy rights to gun rights. But I can promise you that any pretense of simply being a fair arbiter of the constitutionality of any policy, regardless of politics, is simply a pretense. He made up his mind nearly a generation ago. And if he's confirmed, he'll have nearly two generations to impose it on the rest of us. Now, we need to take a little review, I think, of the Federalist Society. Um, I was emailed a wonderful piece on it, and a, which talked about Kavanaugh, which I can't put my hands on at the moment. So instead, I'm going to rely upon the briefing section of the week, in this case, the August 31st edition of the magazine, on the Federalist Society. The piece I can't put my hands on talked about how in the early days it was going to be called the Anti-Federalist Society because it was actually opposed to many of the ideas that George Washington's Federalist Party were putting forth in the 1790s, which is sort of ironic, being that the society claims that it's trying to interpret the Constitution as it was originally intended. To quote from the briefing, what is the Federalist Society? An organization of more than 70,000 conservative and libertarian lawyers and law students with chapters at every accredited law school in the country. All of the Supreme Court's conservative justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Roberts, have been members, as has Brent Kavanaugh. That's no coincidence. The Federalist Society exerts unparalleled influence over Republican judicial appointments, offering the definitive endorsement of a political judge's conservative bona fides. During his campaign for president, by the way, Trump promised that all of his judicial appointees would be picked by the Federalist Society. How did it start? When Ronald Reagan led the conservative revolution that put him in the White House in 1981, law schools were dominated by liberal professors. A small group of conservative students at Yale and the, and the University of Chicago banded together to challenge that status quo. The Yaleys were led by Professor Robert Bork, whom Reagan later nominated to the Supreme Court. He was rejected by Senate Democrats as too extreme, as you may recall if you're old enough. The Chicago students were mentored by Antonin Scalia, whom Reagan successfully placed on the court in 1986. Scalia and Bork were the leading proponents of originalism, which holds that justices should interpret the Constitution by attempting to discern the literal meaning of the text when it was written. Liberal justices, by contrast, perceived the Constitution as a living document whose descriptions of basic rights can be interpreted in a more expansive way tailored to modern circumstances. In answer to the question, why was the society so successful, the magazine stated that for decades, judges, judges appointed by Republican presidents tended to drift to the left over the course of their careers. One of George H.W. Bush's picks, David Souter, 
ended up reliably siding with the liberal bloc, voting in 1992's Planned Parenthood versus Casey to uphold the right to abortion established by Roe v. Wade. Originalism was created in part to guard against such betrayals by emphasizing a fixed interpretation of the law. After George W. Bush was elected president, conservatives, conservatives objected to his nomination of Harriet Myers of the Supreme Court on the grounds that she was not a Federalist Society member and might drift to the middle like the Reagan appointee she was tapped to replace, Sandra Day O'Connor. To the question, how does this society work? The magazine said, the organization claims to be a nonpartisan society of ideas. But that it shares objectives with the Repub- but that it sh- but that it shares objectives with the Republican Party is undeniable. It receives millions of dollars from conservatives and libertarian mega donors such as the Mercer family and the Koch brothers. The society reported twenty-eight million dollars in assets in twenty seventeen. Asked if the Federalists are winning, the magazine noted that during the Obama years, conservatives lost major battles on gay marriage and the Affordable Care Act. But if Anthony Kennedy is replaced by Brett Kavanaugh or another justice with Federalist views, the court will move significantly to the right for years to come. Trump also inherited more than 100 openings in the federal judiciary, mainly because the Republican-controlled Senate systematically blocked President Obama's appointments. This is disgusting. It should be noted that liberal scholars argue that originalism is just a front for conservative views and that it's not possible to discern without any personal biases the intended meaning and application of such ambiguous terms as equal protection, unreasonable, probable cause, due process, and well-regulated militia. Back in 1985, liberal justice William Brennan said that to insist that only originalists properly interpret what the founders intended is arrogance cloaked as humility. And I mentioned some weeks back that I could not put my hand on a little piece on the Second Amendment. I've subsequently located it and want to quote from it at exactly this point. It was written to The Economist magazine by a Thomas Haycraft of Fairfax, Virginia, on on the subject of the founders' opinions on guns. Said Mr. Haycraft, to understand America's Second Amendment, you should look at the original text in the first Congress held on the right to bear arms. In June of 1789, James Madison proposed nine resolutions borrowing from state constitutions and the English Bill of Rights. He submitted the following language regarding the right to bear arms. The basis of this eventually became the Second Amendment. The original text said, The right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, a well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country but no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Said the writer, Congress was more concerned about the mechanics of setting up a functioning government. The language on bearing arms got revised to a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people being the best security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but no person religiously scrupulous shall be compelled to bear arms. Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts led the debate in the House of Representatives. Notes the author of this letter, not one person challenged his assertion that the capacity to bear arms referred to the people's ability to form militias as a defense against a tyrannical government. 
Without comment as to why, they finally revised the text to a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The author points out that the original intent of the amendment was to link the right to bear arms with militia service. The Supreme Court ruled as such on a number of occasions in the 19th and 20th centuries. It was not until the court changed direction, led by judges committed to interpret the, quote, original, unquote, meaning of the Constitution, that regulating the militia and the right to bear arms were decoupled. Ironically, these originalists ignored the Foundation's original intent. Ouch. We need to lighten things up here in the last five minutes. Let's talk about the fact that former Radio Parallax guest and my neighbor, John Lysak, last month celebrated his 104th birthday. John remains mentally sharp as a tack and is, of course, an inspiration to all of us. We would refer you to our archives for our chat with John about his comp competition in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. I would note with some optimism that John's chances of reaching his next birthday at 105 remain better than even, because in fact it is the age of 100 at 5, at which point your odds of making your next birthday drops below 50-50. This does explain why the oldest living person at age 122, I believe that's the oldest that's ever been fully verified, a pretty tall order because when you start at 105, your odds for the next birthday are one half or less. So you've got to basically flip 17 heads in a row, in other words, to make 122. Well, actually, that's in the best case scenario. When you're like 119, your odds are going to drop way lower than 50%. But anyway, we, uh, we, we may bring, bring John back on at age 104 because he's still got such marvelous stories to tell. And uh, like I said, absolutely sharp and able to communicate effectively. And, and by God, that, you know, make a note, Mr. Merlin, we got to bring John back on. Absolutely. And speaking of advanced age and how's this for a segue, it turns out that the Milky Way's elderly neighbors are apparently some of the oldest galaxies in the universe. Yes, our galaxy is not among the oldest, but apparently some of the satellite galaxies which are orbiting our Milky Way galaxy are. The Ursa Major and Bootes I are thought to be more than 13 billion years of age, which goes back to within, you know, 300,000 years of like the dawn of the universe. This might be something we can talk about in the future when we flesh out some, some of the math and details on it. And you know, while we've been critical on this program, including this program today of uh, the American presidency, isn't it nice to know that efforts are afoot to see what they can do to improve Russian-U.S. relations? So it is that Russia has cast Steven Seagal to serve as a special representative tasked with improving U.S.-Russia relations. Seagal, of course, is famous for beating up villains in the 1990s action movies in 1990s action movies. Seagal, age 66, is close with another martial artist, Russian President Vladimir Putin, who personally awarded Seagal Russian citizenship in 2016. Seagal, in turn, has defended Russia's annexation of Crimea. He's insisted that Russia did not interfere in the 2016 presidential, 
presidential election and has called Vladimir Putin a great world leader. As a special envoy to the U.S., Seagal will seek to promote cooperation in culture, arts, public, and youth exchanges between the two countries. And Radio Parallax speculates more action-packed movies. Mr. McMillan, for his part, is keen to see a buddy picture with Steven Seagal and Vladimir Putin. Perhaps they could remake that great Seagal epic, Out for Justice. Come to think of it, a remake of Hard to Kill might factor in with some, you know, poisoning of former Russian diplomats. Heck, maybe they can, heck, maybe they can remake Mark for Death, only this time they're throwing in some polonium into the equation. I don't know. All right, final item, note to vegetarians. According to Bloomberg.com, dogs, cats, and other American pets eat about 30% of all meat consumed in America. As Johnny Carson might say, I did not know that. All right, in the 60 seconds or so we have left, I think I'm going to go back to Burt Reynolds. <laughs> and, but enough about me. He closed his chapter about Smokey and the Bandit as follows. Most of the critics panned Smokey. The best reviews came from the audience, and the only movie that grossed more that year was Star Wars. So if you want to know about a film, don't read the reviews. Listen to the word of mouth from people who've seen it. Alfred Hitchcock was quoted as saying, and his daughter later confirmed it, that Smokey and the Bandit was his favorite movie. But Billy Bob Thornton had the last word. You know, he said, down south we consider Smokey and the Bandit a documentary. He's pounded down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. All right, that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am Dr. Douglas Everett. Well, that's not what it says on my medical license. I believe we'll have some fun medical stuff for you on next week's program. We'll see you then. No matter what it takes, he's pounding down, loaded up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound, just watch your bandit run.